You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This last lesson I've called The Very Best Book. And that title came from Charles Dickens. He said, The New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. And I thought that is a very succinct way of putting great amount of value and worth on the Bible. We've been in our series now. This is the 34th week, 34th lesson. And I know when we started, you thought, what is going on with this class? All we're doing is introductions. Because we did about four weeks of introductions to just the setting, the context, and, and the different religious groups, and the different places, and the political powers, and everything that the history, the intertestamental period that led up to the New Testament, we did all of those introductions, and you thought, oh, finally, after four lessons, we're finally done introductions. The next lesson was the introduction to the Gospels, <laughs> and so we did an introduction, and then, and then from that point on, I was very consistent. We did an introduction to each book, and, and that's how we've got to 34 lessons, and so Finally, this will not be an introduction, this will be a conclusion. But if you remember in our series, we had set out a few goals, and obviously the goal of every series, everything we do is to glorify God, but we wanted to do that in our class in one way, by developing good hermeneutics. Uh, We want to learn to interpret the Bible properly, and I know this has been something that that I'm sure has been a focus in your life all the way along, and it's just something we want to continue to build in our church, that people open up the Word of God, and they don't just read into it whatever they want. They don't just pull from it whatever they feel like they want it to say, that we allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And the only way we can do that is when we read the Bible in its context. When our first question is, what did it mean to the original hearers? And when we know that, we know what the author meant to convey to the people, then we can rightly apply it to our lives today. And so that's been our, that's been our goal. Um, and why do we do this? I think it's obviously because we want to know God's truth. We don't want to know our own truth. But realize that understanding this, and, and even though hermeneutics and, and this might seem like a weird process to apply to the Bible, that we, we've got to study it and find the science of interpretation. But ultimately it leads to we worship better. We worship better because we, we know God. We know the real God. And so we can worship him in spirit and in truth. It helps us to serve better, because then we know what God wants of us. It, it helps us to develop a deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior. We get to know Him and who He really is intimately. We're not just making up a character in our mind. We know truth. We know accurate, true doctrine. And those are essential things for the Christian. So that was our, our mid-range goal, was the good hermeneutics. And how we did that was that we investigated each book. We investigated some of the context, um, some of the spiritual and historical and cultural context of the books that were written. We talked about who the author was, who the recipients were, and why the book was written, the purpose. And so I hope as we did that, we came to um, a greater desire to read the book, to study it, and to apply it to our lives. So let's pray, and then we'll finish up our final lesson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for the Word of God. And Lord, we do not understand now how precious it is. And God, I pray that as we study tonight, you would give us a greater glimpse of the wonder of your Word, that we get to hold it in our hands, take it home and read it, and how privileged and blessed we are. And Lord, how easy it is to forget that. 
And God, I pray that you'd help us to want to know what your word says. Um, and Lord, it's because we want to know you. So help us to, to, to long to know Jesus and to, to love him more, to worship him in a more full way as we study this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The goal of tonight is, is that we establish a renewed gratefulness for the word of God. We are, in this sense, the most privileged generation that has ever lived. If you're alive today, you have the ability to take home a copy of the Word of God yourself. You have the ability to go on the internet and search just an incredible amount of resources that will help teach you and train you. And we have just so many resources at our fingertips. We're so privileged in this way. But I think sometimes our access to the Word of God makes it common to us. Because we have the ability to take it home, because we can search it, because it's just, it's everywhere. You think about how it used to be when they, all they had was scrolls that were handwritten and they were kept at the synagogues or kept at the churches. And, and the only time you really get to hear the word of God is when you went to the church and the, the pastor gave the sermon or the rabbi gave the, the lesson that they open it up and then read it and they would just sit there and they would soak it in because they wanted it so badly and they didn't have access to it like we did. And so it was just something that was kept in a special place and it was treated with honor and respect. And, and all of this allowed them to have this high view of God's Word. And God's Word is just as wonderful as it ever was. But we have so much access to it that we take it home and it's just not a big deal. And it's okay if you just kind of... I and mean, we don't realize the blessing we have, how, how privileged we are. And so I want to have a renewed gratefulness for that. Um, the commonality of God's word creates in us an irreverence for it. We don't treat it reverently. We debate it, we misuse it, we ignore it, um, we rarely pick it up. We don't realize the blessing it is. And that is something that should change in our lives. You want to have three good reasons to read the Word of God? It shows you how to be saved. It shows you what is true. And it shows you how to live. What else is there? You need to be saved. You need to know Christ. You need to know how to have eternal life. You find that in the Word of God. You need to know truth. Truth about God. Truth about you. Truth about this world. That's The only place you're going to find absolute truth is in the Word of God that you can trust that you can trust more than your own mind. And you need to know how to live. And that it's all here. What else do we need? And so we ought to approach this book with gratefulness, with reverence. Um, gratefulness to the men that wrote it down. I, I mean, grateful that we have these examples for us of, of godly men that wrote this down. Uh, Blaise Pascal said, I prefer to believe those writers who get their throats cut for what they write. And these men are examples of that. They, they died preaching what they wrote down here for us. But certainly, so much more so to the God who planned it, who inspired it, who has preserved it, who illuminates us it in our hearts and minds by His Spirit. And so we ought to be grateful. So, what is the purpose then of the New Testament? Over the course of this series, we've looked at the introduction to each book. And in each book, we've talked about a purpose, just a summary snapshot, a summary statement of what the author was trying to accomplish in that particular book. 
And I thought it would be interesting to look at those all together. So as we look at the New Testament, we see what it's all about. We say, here is a, a brief snapshot summary of each book helping us understand the flow of the New Testament and what it's all about, what it's all there for. And so I looked at this and I thought, well, you have the book of Matthew. You start in the Gospels and you start with the book of Matthew. And there we find that Matthew wrote to present and to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. And so we have Matthew writing to the Jews. He's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the King. You start in the Old Testament and you have everything leading up to this. Here he is. That is what Matthew's proclaiming. The Messiah, the King is here and he has died to save us. And then you got Mark to present the power and the mission of Jesus, the suffering servant and the divine savior. Here we get his, his mission. We get his suffering. We see his power on full display. That he is both human in his suffering and divine. He is God. Then we see Luke, that he gives a detailed historical account of the personhood, life, and mission of Christ as seen by eyewitnesses. Luke gives us the detail. He fills in the names and the places and the gaps and and he gives us a wonderful historian's point of view. And then we have John. In John, we see that Jesus is the divine Son of God and that all who believe on him will be granted eternal life. And we look at John's book and it's, if you believe, you'll have life. He wrote so that we would know the truth, so we would know Christ, and that in knowing him, we would have eternal life. Then we move on to the historical books. You, you take a look at the book of Acts and I... Again, I know I'm in the book of Acts. I've been there for four years on Sunday nights. We're just about to get ready to finish that. And so I love the book of Acts. You know that. But once again, I want to remind you, what, what would be lost if we didn't have that book? Acts is to record the cooperative efforts of the Holy Spirit and the disciples to preach the word and build the church of Christ. It is this wonderful bridge between the Gospels. We have the work and the mission of Jesus found in the Gospels. This is what he accomplished. This is who he was. This is his revelation to us. And then in the book of Acts, we see that message proclaimed to the world. Everybody in the world. I mean, certainly not every person at that time, but all over the world. This message is taken of Jesus who died and rose again for the sins of not just Jews, but Gentiles. And so we see the Holy Spirit empowering them to fulfill this mission. We see the church built. We see the example of the early church and what a church ought to be. So much is gained from the book of Acts. Then we move on to the Pauline epistles. And so now we've got this foundation laid, but there's many gaps missing. Like, okay, so exactly what ought we believe? How should the church run? And then Paul steps in and, and just provides all that information for us. The book of Romans is to declare the fulfillment of the gospel and to demonstrate its power to justify and transform condemned sinners and to bring them into a unified family of God. This is the book of Romans. It is the gospel unpacked. It is God's plan to justify sinful people. How he takes a sinner who's an enemy of his and makes him a child and adopts him as a son. This is, this is the book of Romans. He is now justified when he was once condemned. It's because of Christ. And now Jews and Gentiles and everybody, we're all one family. We're unified in the family of God. In 1 Corinthians, the book pastors in and will be in for this year, is written to answer questions and address problems of morality, unity, and doctrine that had arisen within the church. So you have the book of 1 Corinthians that takes all of these difficult questions, and I'm really excited to see how pastor presents some of these difficult things, because the truth is when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a very countercultural book. Our society today thinks very differently about some of these subjects than what the book of 1 Corinthians teaches. But God's desire is 
for the church, even the church in Corinth, even the church in the most vile, disgusting city in the entire world at the time, that church should be holy. That church should live right. That church was called to be a believer, and that meant living differently. And so, he writes to answer their questions and then to address their morality. 2 Corinthians, he writes to explain his ministry and to defend his authority while compelling charitable giving and living within the church of Corinth. So he says, listen, I've, I've written to you in the past, you know, we've, we've had our struggles, him in this church of Corinth, but I want to explain to you my ministry. I want to talk to you now about giving. As you're growing up as a believer, I want to give some of this further information to you. Uh, I want you to give charitably. I want you to live right in the church. I want you to be a unified family. Then he gets to the book of Galatians. And after he deals with First and Second Corinthians, you think, man, it, it shouldn't get too much worse than that because look at how disgusting they were. But then he gets to the book of Galatians and he's just mean. I mean, he is, he is not kind to this church. Certainly he doesn't mince words. He writes to defend the gospel of justification by faith and to explain the function of the law, faith, and the Holy Spirit in the salvation and sanctification of all people. The Galatian church, they weren't involved in all the sin of the Corinthians, but they had messed up the gospel. They had added rules to the gospel. It was no longer by faith alone. It was you get saved by faith in Christ and then you live the rest of your life in a legalistic manner. And he writes to say that's not it. The law has a function, but it's not what you're using it for. The Holy Spirit needs to be guiding and growing you. And so you should be displaying the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And that's the book of Galatians. That's actually the next series that we're going to start on Sunday nights after the book of Acts is done. And I'm very excited about that. Then we get to the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we find it's to glory in the doctrine of redemption and adoption, resulting in our new identity as sons, and to provide practical guidelines on Christian conduct in the church, home, and world. So the first three chapters of Ephesians, we just glory in this wonderful doctrine of adoption. That Christ has brought dead people back to life spiritually. That they're now alive in him. And then in verses, chapters 4 to 6, we find all of the practical ramifications of that. If you're a believer in Christ now, if you've been adopted by him, if you're a child of God, you live different. You live different in your church. You live different in the home. You live different in the world that you live in. You're a different, different person. And then we get to the book of Philippians. And remember, the Philippian church was suffering. They were persecuted. Paul writes from prison, and it's to thank the believers for their gifts and to strengthen them by reminding them that true joy comes from Christ alone. And the Philippians is the book of joy. And there we have a person in prison writing to persecuted people saying, there is joy in Christ outside of your circumstances. Colossians is to point Jesus as the source of all things, the purpose for which all things exist, the divine Savior, and the only one worthy of our love and devotion. Listen, if you want to develop a good Christology, a good belief about Christ, look at Colossians. It lifts him up high. Then 1 Thessalonians is to encourage believers to walk in hope and holiness in the midst of persecution and temptation. They face what we face. Persecution, temptation, all believers face that. But he's not saying it's okay to just walk however the world directs you, you are a believer, you walk in hope. 
you walk in holiness. Second Thessalonians is to correct misunderstandings about Christ's second coming and to exhort believers to remain faithful to their sovereign Lord. So I want you to know some things that you're maybe getting mixed up about the second coming. I want you to remain faithful to God. So that's Paul's church epistles, but then he specifically directs his attention to some of the leadership in the church. Some of the men that he has groomed, he has discipled to become leaders in the church. And he says, I want to give you some instruction for the churches you're leading. And, and I'm incredibly grateful for this. What, what a practical books, three books in a row here. They're so practical for us. First Timothy is to teach Timothy how to govern a local church and to provide encouragement and instruction regarding his duties as a disciple and as a shepherd. And he's so encouraging. Paul loved people. He didn't just preach nice messages. He didn't just have good doctrine. He poured his life into people, whether that was people that weren't saved, that he was evangelizing, and even though they were beating him and hitting him, he was turning around and saying, listen, Jesus loves you and he died to save you. He was that guy, but he was also the guy who took people who loved Christ and, and brought them along in their walk and shepherded them and guided them and, and loved them in the journey. And so when you read these books, they're just so full of love. And he writes to encourage him and to instruct him. <laughs> the truth is, as much as everybody might think the opposite, running a church is not an easy thing. Leadership in the church, it's, it's not easy. And so it's wonderful to have books like this to encourage and to instruct. Second Timothy is to give final instructions and encouragement to Timothy, a minister of the gospel, and to reflect on his own life of faithful service. It's his, his swan song. Last letter before he dies. And we see reflections on his life. And it's just a wonderful book about Paul and how grateful he was to have the opportunity to serve his Lord and how excited he was about meeting the one who died for him. The book of Titus is once again written to Titus, another son in the faith, and it was to provide encouragement, guidance, warning, and instruction to Titus as he set up leadership, taught truth, and exemplified Christian living to the members of the church of Crete. Philemon. Now, this is, Philemon's a little bit hard to categorize exactly because Philemon wasn't the pastor of the church, although it might have been in his house, but he was a prominent member of the church there, and it's just like this short, I think, picture of grace and forgiveness that we have. So Philemon is written to compel Philemon to demonstrate the grace that he has experienced in Christ on his runaway slave Onesimus. I love this, this little book because it is a picture of God's grace. See, Onesimus had wronged Philemon. He didn't deserve forgiveness. But then Paul says, on the fact that God has forgiven you, you ought to forgive him. And that is a great lesson for us. Then we move on from Paul's writings to one book that we, Paul might have wrote, we're not sure. I think I argued that he didn't write it, but I don't, I don't know. And um, I was actually directed to a few resources after I taught that lesson that tried to convince me he did write it. And so, hey, I... I still think he might, probably didn't, but I don't know. But in any case, these are the general or the Hebrew epistles. The book of Hebrews is written to present the superiority and sufficiency of Christ as a mediator of God's grace and to call believers to radical faith in him. Jesus is better. That's the message. It's better than the, the, the angels, better than the sacrifices, better than the priesthood. He is better. He is the best. And so if you're a Hebrew, it would be foolish to turn from what you have now 
the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament turned back to the law and back to Judaism just because you got a little bit of persecution. The book of James is to call believers to act upon the faith they profess to believe in by living a life marked by good works in all areas of their lives. He says, listen, you say you have faith. I want to see it. If you really have faith, it should act. It should, there should be feet. Okay? If you have faith, it changes how you talk. It changes how you live. It changes how you love. It changes how you treat the people of society who everybody else neglects and forsakes and doesn't care about. True religion is living real faith. First Peter, the Apostle Peter writes to encourage Christians to remain faithful in times of suffering and to give them hope and instruction that they needed to do so. You need to remain faithful. There is suffering in this Christian life. There, there absolutely will be. And so what do we do? Well, we remain faithful and we do it because we have the truths, because we have the knowledge that he presents of the gospel that he presents in his letter. Second Peter is to warn believers against false doctrine and to direct them to the word of God, wherein they will find what they need to grow in faith and knowledge. There is false teachers all over the place. Peter knows it. In fact, just about every book of the New Testament warns against it. And so Peter is writing to warn them against the false doctrine and to direct, to direct them back to the Word of God because it's in the Word of God that you'll find what you need to actually grow in your Christian life. 1 John is written to provide clarity on key Christological doctrines and to provide assurance of salvation so that believers can find joy in having a bona fide relationship with the Father and the Son. He wants them to be clear on their salvation. And so he goes through his book and he gives marks of real believers. You love the word. You love one another. There is fruit in your life. And when you see these things happening, you know that you're a believer. So when you're a believer, you, you know you have that relationship with God. So stay away from these false teachers. Stay away from this false doctrine. You have a relationship with the God of heaven. He wants them to know that. Second John is to encourage believers to walk in truth and love and to warn them of false teachers. Remember, we talked about the relationship between truth and love, and that really you can't have one without the other. If you have truth and there's no love, it's just brutality. It's just unkindness. You're just smacking people with truths, but there's nothing good behind it. That is not how Christ presented truth. And when you have love without truth, you're, you're telling people false things that make them feel better, and it's going to lead to their destruction. And so you can't have one without the other. The book of 3 John is to commend and encourage Gaius. Gaius was a man of God, and he was encouraging his godly living that he already saw and encouraging that it continues, and that he wanted to warn against the arrogance of Diotrephes and to endorse Demetrius as a godly man. Diotrephes wanted the preeminence. Because only Christ can have the preeminence in the church, and so we need to get rid of this guy, um, and Demetrius is going to help you and help the church to do that. And then we have the book of Jude. And Jude is written again by Jesus' half-brother. And it's written to charge believers to remain strong in the faith and to, to defend it against heresy and ungodliness to the end. The Christian faith is worth defending. The Christian faith changes people, and so we need to defend it, and we need, we need to make sure in our life there's no perpetual ungodliness present that would make it look like we don't have real faith. 
And finally, we get to the last book of the, the New Testament and the final book written, the book of Revelation. The Apostle John writes to fortify persecuted believers and to spur nominal believers into action by revealing the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. This is the last lesson we did, and remember that the focus of Revelation is the glory of Jesus. And if we can read our book with our eyes on him, rather than trying to answer every question that we might be able to conjure up in our minds, and we have tons of questions, we all want to know the answer, we all want to know the ending. And Revelation, it provides us with some of those answers. But that, the purpose is that we just look at the glory and the greatness of Jesus, and that's what we do first and foremost. And when we do that, I think we get a good picture of what Revelation is about. And so we, we take this as a whole, and we see this, this New Testament is such a wonderful, wonderful collection of books for us. It is, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful story that's told. Andy Brown, we said something like, you can't see the forest for the trees. You know that saying, it's used quite often. But Andy Brown doesn't know what it means. And so whenever he didn't know what to say, he just said, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. It just never applied properly when he said it, but that was the case. But I do wonder if sometimes Christians can't see the forest for the trees. We're so caught up in where we're at that sometimes we don't, we don't get outside and look at this New Testament as a whole and we see the beauty of it. We see how wonderful it is that God provided everything we need and we're so caught up in our daily lives that we forget that we have a God who's a wonderful God, who's a father to us, who has a wonderful plan. He's written all of this for us and, and it's everything we need to survive and to thrive in our Christian lives. See, it's all, we, all the ingredients we need to grow. You think about how the Bible plays out in, in that we have the Old Testament and we have this expectation growing and building in the Old Testament of a Savior that's to come. And then we get to the Gospels, and this is like the culmination of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. All of the sacrifices and all of that foreshadowed this one event, that the Messiah would come and that he would die, that he would rise again, that he would save his people from their sins. And so we have the Gospels as this culmination. At this point, the message hasn't gone out. There's, there's a few people in Jerusalem and in Palestine that know of Jesus, but this is the event that changes the world. This is the central event of all of history. Then in the book of Acts, we have the proclamation. That message begins to go. People begin to be told about Jesus and people are empowered to go tell people about Jesus. We get to the epistles and we find the explanation. This is what Christianity is about. This is what the church is all about. This is what's supposed to happen. This is how we function. This is how we run. This is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. We have the explanation of what Christian living is all about. And then the prophecy. Book of Revelation, the anticipation. And as believers, while we do this, and while we believe this, and while we don't do this, and don't believe this, while, we, while we're living our Christian lives like we're supposed to, and proclaiming all the while the gospel of Christ, we look forward to, we anticipate his second coming. It's a beautiful story. When you look at it like that, when you step back and look at the New Testament, it, isn't, it, isn't it a wonderful plan? I mean, how God has all of those features, all of that for us? All the ingredients we need to grow. You look at Jesus, you look at the Gospels, we got his wonderful stories of love, of compassion, of kindness. We see what righteous anger is like. We get story after story of miracles that demonstrate his deity, but then we see his weakness and his weeping. All of these things show his humanity. We see 
him go to the cross and, and in his humanity. I mean, there's, there's that part of him that he doesn't want to go. And yet at the same time, he, he's willing to go and he knows he needs to go and he does what God wants him to do, his father. I mean, what a wonderful example for us. This story. And then he rises again. And it's just that guarantee of victory. And so that's, that's, everything is based on that. And then we look at Acts and we have examples of, of how this is supposed to look like. Of how that event and, and that man, that God-man that came, how that plays out in the life of God's people. We see the epistles and all of the doctrine on all of the instruction and all of the truths that we're supposed to know. We see revelation. We see the final victory. We, we have everything as a believer that we need to grow. So, if that's true, then why is it that we don't revere this book more? That we're not more grateful for it? I mean, I know Wednesday night crowd, the truth is I look, I look out here and I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe you do. I mean, you probably do. You guys are good folks. But why is it that we don't take everything that this says and just want it and just devour it because it's such a beautiful story and it's everything that we need and we get so caught up in our troubles and our trials and everything around us and sometimes we forget what a privilege it is that we take one of these home and we have it beside our bedside and we can wake up and read it or read it before we go to bed or i mean it's it's god's message to you when i speak about the bible and i think other pastors speak of the bible they use words like it's um infallible it is inspired it god will illuminate it to your minds what it means that it's inerrant and it's all these these big i words that um, maybe don't resonate immediately but all that all that said because it's trying to convey something that is that god wrote a message for you it's a book that is perfect it's for your life and it's meant for you to take it home and to, to grow from it, to read it, to learn about who he is. It's a book that you can trust and a book that you can use as a foundation for your life. Abraham Lincoln said this, I am busily engaged in the study of the Bible. I believe it is God's word because it finds me where I am. The Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All of the good of the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. It's not really no impressive sentences there. And that is a great summary of what the Bible is. The Bible is God's message. In these pages, he communicates to us everything we need to know about this life and the next. I would like to close this evening by reading one of my favorite quotes about the Bible. And the first time I saw it, it was, it was found in a book by Harold Wilmington, but I don't think he wrote it. I think it's an anonymous quote he used. And so this is what it says. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. 
Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened in the judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. And that is the end of our series on the 21st Century Guide to New Testament.